they call us take six to the stage please mark had done a great arrangement we knew that arrangement well no concern we get out there and we do our thing there was silence and sort of the assistant director comes out on stage you know with the um there seems to be a mix-up next thing you know oh oh yes sir yes sir yes sir a quincy is coming to the stage and we're like oh wow he comes down on stage and says uh uh you guys didn't get the tape Turn, turns out that mark had uh received the first tape, but didn't receive the replacement tape. Quincy had a conversation with me. He told me what it needed to be. I said, okay, we will do that. And, and immediately, while they were still finishing up everything else, we went to a little spinet piano yes. on the side of the, you know, in one of the side rooms and got our act together that we- We, we thought we did a great job. And then we came back on stage and presented it. Uh, Quincy tells us to wait. It wasn't perfect, but we were trying to reassure Quincy uh, that trust us, tomorrow it will be perfect. That didn't go over too well. So a a as I was saying, everyone had left. We saw people cleaning up, lights were off. Quincy calls us out there and he starts saying, sing it, go, go over it again. Uh, who, hey, who's singing this note? Uh, Dave, you're tripping. Go over it again. Uh, who's singing this note as usual, Joey? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Jazz. 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 Jazz with Kenny Anderson. I'm so happy and delighted to be here with you today for this experience that we often provide so that we can get an inside look at the jazz music world and so much more. I'm honored today to have as my very special guest a legendary group of singers, performers, and friends. They're none other than Take Six. And I'm so honored to have them with me today. I see you guys out there, David Thomas, Mark Kibble, Christian Dentley, Joe Kibble, and Claude McKnight. Thank you so much for being a part of our conversation today, fellas. Hey, thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, man. Man, you know, I mentioned that last piece about friends, and one of the things that I found fascinating about these kinds of opportunities to come together and talk, that there's a less of a formality with it because we have a long relationship. And that makes it real special for me because you guys, of course, have actually set the bar high for so long. It was 1988, and I wanna take us all back to that time. Uh, can I maybe roll the clock back just a little bit for a second and have you guys take us back to that moment where just prior to your ability to be able to get on the largest stage there is out there, coming out the gate with a huge album called Take Six and two Grammy Award wins. Tell me about the backstory of the beginning, which of course is legendary as well. Just talk a little bit about that. I'm gonna let any of you jump in there that wanna jump in there about that. Well, the, the beginning of the group, you know, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit. And I started a quartet at Oakwood University, Oakwood College back then. Uh, it was a freshman quartet. And we used to rehearse in Moran Hall in the bathroom down there. And Mark Kibble came into that bathroom as a fifth part of what we were doing, subsequently became the arranger of the group. 
we added Mervyn Warren. And from there, it was a sextet. And we wanted to differentiate ourselves away from all the other uh, quartets and trios and stuff on campus. So, you know, it was from Mark's arranging that really set the stage for what we have now. And of course, as I said, that led to an audition with Warner Brothers Records, Jim Ed Norman, and so many more opportunities since that time. But I want to ask you about coming out the gate with an album and winning Grammys from that. You, of course, won two Grammys from that particular album. And uh, what was that experience like? It had to be a crazy experience in so many ways. Mark, what was that experience like? It was like us being deer caught in headlights. That's what it was like. We, uh, when we first, uh, when I think our manager, Gail Hamilton at the time, um, told us that we'd been nominated for Grammys and I had to review what was a Grammy. <laughs> I knew it was an award, but I did not even know the significance of it because I had never even paid attention. So, you know, and then to realize that not only are you nominated, uh, just to get nominated, we had no idea how deep that really is. But to be nominated and then to, uh, to actually be asked to perform on it, um, as well as uh, being nominated for Best New Artist, which is such a high category, um, we had no clue about how deep that was. We later found out how deep that is. But, um, but once we realized it, even when we were doing the Grammys, it was still, we were still like Dear Caught in Lights, you know? Um, but just completely overwhelmed with all of the support and, um, and, you know, we were there at the Grammys and Stevie Wonder jumped out of the seat while we're performing. You know, it, it was just an amazing experience. You know, you can't, you can't duplicate that. I'll actually uh, add a little perspective to that. One of the reasons for the deer in headlight uh, syndrome that we all experience simultaneously uh, is the fact that the main group, you mentioned that showcase that uh, uh, our manager at the time, Gail Hamilton, helped us uh, organize. Actually, she did, she did all the organizing. Uh, but that showcase was really not for Take Six or Alliance, as we were called at the time. That showcase was for a special blend. And, you know, <laughs> they were at the time considered the really serious group that was really, you know, had all of the uh, and what I thought to hear Mark say that he didn't even know what a Grammy was is, is enlightening to me because I, we thought that they were the serious ones and we were just like guys having fun. And uh, out of that showcase, which, again, wasn't a showcase for us, we're the ones who ended up with the record deal. So and at the time, Jim Ed said, you know, and this is a, a, a famous anecdote as well or one that's been told over and over again. Uh, if you sell 10 to 15 at max 20,000, we'll consider uh, units, we'll consider this, you know, you're recording this a success and we'll jump in and, and, and possibly do another one. And so that's pretty much where our expectation was and um, uh, had no idea that it would seriously change the, our life trajectories and, and impact in the way that it did. So uh that's really where the deer in the headlights came from. And out of that, you know, that same uh, expectation of 10 to 15,000 units ended up selling like 1.8, 1.9 million units. And suddenly it was on the next record, the next project 
that the pressure actually started to uh, be shifted more toward us. Because at the time, that was when uh, Jim Ed said to us, you know, at the beginning, no expectation. When you sell over a half a million units, now you're part of the Warner Brothers machine. And we expect you to actually add to our bottom line from this point on. Uh, <laughs> and so all of a sudden, we're like, hey, what? <laughs> you know, we, we had to try to reproduce the same level of, of success. Uh, and that's kind of where the train got off the tracks and not got off the tracks, got started on the tracks, I should say. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history, as they say. You know, listen, that's a great backstory for sure and adds depth to our understanding of just what you guys have become as legends in the industry. Speaking of legends, there's one that I think of in the music industry. He's one of the coolest people I know. They call him Q. Goes by one letter. And anytime you reach that status, of course, that's pretty significant. He calls you guys the baddest vocal group on the planet. And I don't think there'd be few pe there'd be few people who would disagree with that. Talk about the Q factor as it has impacted Take Six's success. Wow. Um, that sounds like a Mark Kibble question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to answer. I was just giving you the opportunity because, you know, Claude is, you know, uh, probably the closest to Q right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, being asked by Quincy Jones, who, you know, um, when we when he did ask us, he had already achieved um, uh, the color purple, producing Michael Jackson. He was the cat to be called, and you know, probably at, at you know the pinnacle of his his career. And not that he has stopped because he's still doing you know miraculous things, but. We, when you're asked to work alongside him, you know, there's yet another moment where you don't even realize the depth at, at which you're working. Um, and, and he called us in, he called us to his house. We talked about the project and he just said, you guys, you, first of all, you do what you do. I'm going to allow you to be yourself. I want you to be the best you. You know, and, and we're going to bring that to this table. I don't expect anything else. Just bring the best you. I'm calling on your creativity, what you all have brought to the world. I want on my project. So, and then he said, you know, uh, and, and in, in lasting advice, advice for your career, never stop learning. The moment you stop learning is the moment you start to, to die. And you, you, you know, sink into, you know, oblivion. You continue to learn. He told us that day, I'm still learning. Uh, and I've done, you know, you know the world of, of work. But um, he put, he instilled in us so much wisdom and his, the experience of working with him, we actually felt that he was um, allowing us to be ourselves. Um, and he, we, we created, we did our thing right there in front of him. Um, and, and while he was doing that, he was steering us into what he needed from us, which is what he does with just about every artist that he brings to the table to make that big picture, uh, what it's supposed to be. He has the vision. So there were times when we brought what we brought and he said, no, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. It probably needs to be a little bit more like this over here. 
And we went back and we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. We brought it and, you know, it was what he wanted. And as you can see, the product that it came out with is timeless. So, you know, um, Quincy was one of the people that, that shared our music with so many legends in the industry. We got the chance to meet Miles Davis, um, you know, before he passed away. It was because of Quincy Jones. And, you know, we sang with Sarah Vaughn. We sang with Ella Fitzgerald. So, you know, how else is that going to happen? So you talk about something that launches your career. That's it right there. We have a lot that we owe to you. That's powerful indeed. I want to welcome to the conversation Alvin Chill. What's happening, my brother? Hey, Kenny. Apologies, brother. Good to be here. Good to hey, be man. here. Man, whenever you show up, it's on time, man. It's, it's so good. <laughs> it's Hardest good working see, man, man in show business, man. I got 50 jobs. <laughs> well, listen, thanks for making us part of that process as well. Uh, Joe, I want to ask you for a moment because you joined the group after founding member, original member, uh, Mervyn Warren left. What was that experience like for you to become a part of this group? Well, first of all, a dream come true for me. Um, I had a couple of groups in high school. Um, mm -hmm. And when I started college, um, so I was familiar. And then, of course, growing up in the household, always trying to be like my older brother, I wanted to listen to everything that he was listening to. So if he was listening to the high lows, I was listening to the high lows. And then boasting to my friends, oh, y'all ain't never heard this. I mean, <laughs> I ain't never heard it. So whatever he was listening to, that's what I was listening to. But I guess that's when it began to train my ear. And having my own group actually caused me to be responsible for either arranging or getting those arrangements in. But there was only so far I could go um, because there was already a take six out there. Uh, so I remember it was probably right along. Um, I just started my second year in college, my sophomore year when Mark called me and was like, hey, they're considering you possibly filling in for Merv, uh, replacing Merv, and I just lost it. Now, why? That's the second time. The first time that Mark mentioned it to it was when the first three guys left. Uh, Eric Green, Jerry, uh, Keith. When they first left, he raised the question and my parents shut it down without any, because I was in high school at that point. They were like, oh, you ain't going on no road and quitting school in high school? Oh, please. So after I got over my resentment of them, I think it was probably in college. Still not over there. <laughs> Still not over there. Here's the funny thing. My dad, even then, my parents were not down with it in the least bit. But my dad, unbeknownst to me, until later, had a conversation with my music teacher, Harold Anthony. And he went to him and said, look, what do you, what do you think about them joining this take six, this, this torrid group? What do you think about him dropping out of school? I'm sure, you know, all the worst of it. And Dr. Anthony said to him, look, let him travel. 
there are things I will never be able to teach him in this classroom out of a book that he'll learn from having to be in other cultures, exposed to different types of music, other languages, other countries. I'd never be able to teach him that. Let him travel. And that conversation was pivotal in changing my dad's mind and uh, uh, you know, allowing me to be able to do that. After that, it was now, now, <laughs> little fun fact. I had just been approached just before Mark came to me. I had been approached by Chris Willis, who was telling me, hey, I'm about to leave the Heritage Singers and they're looking for another member. Maybe, you know, you might want to consider. <laughs> and I thought long and hard about right. it. I was like, hmm. Man, heritage singers. <laughs> and I struggle with it because I didn't know any of the cultures. And I was like, well, you know, yeah, maybe I'm not really interested in it. And then Mark came to me so that people didn't know that. Uh, I moved to Nashville, actually was staying in Mark's house. And we had to rehearse heavily for two weeks. I had to learn all their material in two weeks because the first performance was at Carnegie Hall. Mm. And I just remember number one thinking, I am never going to be able to fill the shoes of Mervyn Warren to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> but, you know, I'd never been to Carnegie Hall, so it was neither here nor there until I got on stage and was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> but Mark had done such an awesome job. And the guys had done such a wonderful job of integrating me into the culture that it had its hiccups. They laughed off everything that I'm sure I didn't do right. And then it started up and it was just like, it was one of the most amazing, amazing experiences uh, that I had. That's uh, fascinating information, I'm sure. And uh, I love the backstories. Uh, so why don't we just continue with that? Christian, you came in at a point of transition when founding member and original member Cedric Dent left the group uh, or transitioned away from the group. I don't think you ever leave Take Six. Uh, but uh, Christian, you came on board. Talk about that transition. This was something that I could not have written uh, it was all God for real. I uh, ended up um, showed a story plenty of times and I, I love telling it because of just how amazing it is. But um, I was a senior in high school in the year 2000 and I was living in Fort Lauderdale at the time. And um, Take Six came to town with what's called the Glaxo Welcome Tour. I'll never forget it. Fred Hammond, Yolanda Adams, Dawkins and Dawkins and Take Six. And my father had just started a ministry that same year. So, you know, all the funds in the house were like just going towards making sure that that stayed, you know, uh, above the water. And uh, I didn't have any money for the for the show. But a couple of years before that, somebody gave my mother um, uh, a shirt, a Fred Hammond shirt, basically, when he uh, when he did the tour of uh, the Pages of Life record. And so I put that shirt on and, and just literally went down to the theater that morning. And the 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 union workers who were there to supply all of the, you know, just put a set up everything for the tour, uh, saw my shirt and thought I was with Fred. 
and brought me into the concert. It got, brought me into the to the the hall early that morning. I'm setting up equipment, and and long story short, I meet the guys that day. And I'm sitting on the stage in in 2000 at the what was at the time the Sunrise Musical Theater, and the guy watching the listening to the guys uh, warm up to Oh Mary Don't You Weep had having no idea that four years later um, an opportunity would present itself for me to fill in for Sid, uh, who accepted a position at MTSU. And it was kind of like the same thing that Joey was saying. Um, um, I remember I was sitting at Wendy's, uh, sitting at Wendy's in West Palm Beach, uh, talk, having lunch with a friend of mine. And, um, and Mark called me on the phone because I had sent, my, honestly, the trajectory of my life at that time, four years out of, out of high school, was not what I had planned. I wanted to go to, uh, to a college in Georgia, honestly, because I had a, a girlfriend who was living in Atlanta. Um, and so I wanted to just go back there and, and you know, my life was going to be centered around Atlanta and all this other kind of stuff. But by the time 2004 got here, I'm looking, looking at, you know, what I thought was going to happen in life and what my reality was. And I was really discouraged. And um, so Mark had given me his email address at that concert and we had stayed in touch via email. I wanted to send him a song. So I sent him, I asked him if it's okay if I send him a song, not as a demo but just to see if I've got something to work with. And Mark was extremely gracious to call me that day and ask me two questions. One, if I would co-write with him on a youth choir record that he was working on, um, that's actually getting ready to have an anniversary for that record. And, um, and number two, if I would, wouldn't my, if I would consider filling in for said, and just like the answer is yes. The answer is a, a definite. Yes. I don't know if I can do this, but the answer is yes. And, um, Ended up going through the same thing that Joey went through. Two weeks of a very uh, rigorous Mark Kibble training. I mean, <laughs> it was, I mean, long rides. Even I remember one time during that two weeks, he had to go to Atlanta. So I'm, I'm riding with him in the car to Atlanta. He's drilling me, drilling me, drilling me. And um, the first show that I did uh, was in Seoul, Korea at the JBC Jazz Festival, which is funny because that concert is actually online and I look a mess. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm just looking at myself like, and, and at this, as I look back at it, I mean, all of these years ago, and I'm, I'm looking at how much fun I was having on stage, knowing that, not knowing actually at the time that I was walking into my purpose. Like this was the reason for me being born. Um, and the guy, the other five guys that I'm, I'm having this, this conversation with are responsible, man, for a lot of the same growth that Joey was talking about. Um, the things that you can't learn out of a textbook, things that no college can teach you. I mean, going from, from country to country, from city to city, even, even working within a group together successfully with, uh, with everybody having their, uh, um, ideas and perspectives and, and leadership. Uh, how to bring your uh, submit to that flow, um, especially starting off as a uh, uh, as a fill in and then moving to an actual member. These lessons have made me a better man, have made me a better husband, have made me a better father. And I owe it firstly to God for setting that up and putting that in me. But secondly, to these guys for allowing me uh, to join the brotherhood. And life has been amazing ever since. Always thought it took a lot of hard work Always thought I had to deal with the pain Walking around with the heavy load While my back was breaking under the strain Then you came and told me I could be free And it showed
feels good, yeah, and it sure feels good. Life is short and you're moving fast. Got your wheels spinning out of control. Oh Lord, I was bareheaded for a crash when I learned I had to let it go. Right then I knew I couldn't deal with the speed as long as I was in the driver's seat. Take Six with Feels Good, the title track from their album, Feels Good. And now back to jazz with Kenny Anderson. Tell me about a highlight, a highlight of your 30 plus year career. Just a highlight, something that we may know about, don't know about, but just talk about a highlight in the time that you've been on this journey. I'm start with Alvin. Um, I think... Um, a couple of years ago, about man, probably about eight, nine years ago by now, we were inducted um, into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. That was a really nice moment. Um, and it was one of those full circle moments where, 
You know, we were the guys that were always run out of the building, chased out of the practice room. Um, you know, they, they really, nobody really knew what to do with us where we really gospel artists. Um, I actually remember being on in the, at, at Dove Awards one weekend uh, when we first signed and um, our record label didn't even allow us to be in the booth or whatever. Something was really funny. And so we literally started singing in the middle of the convention floor. We all gathered around and started singing and all these people just started gathering. So to go from a, a group that was, you know, we tried to have a record, a Christian record deal. Nobody showed up to being inducted to the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. Now all of us were there. Uh, Mervyn was there and Cedric came back in. And there were eight of us on stage. And uh, when we started singing one of the songs, it was it was truly a, a beautiful moment. That's beautiful. David, tell us a highlight. Um, well, mine is going to start off sounding like not quite a highlight, <laughs> but it will uh, reveal itself to be one of the uh, highlights, especially as a learning moment for us. We were... Um, get going back to our, our, our friend, our brother, our father in the industry, Quincy Jones. Um, we were invited to, he was producing the uh, Oscars uh, one year. And so he asked us, you know, uh, uh, would we actually present? And he wanted us to do it in a special way. So, you know, of course, we were super excited. Uh, and for most of us, that's kind of where the story kind of started and, and stayed there for a while, just super excited. Uh, of course, we rely on our superhero arranger, Mark, uh, to do a lot of the heavy lifting for the group. And so uh, not to blame Mark for this fiasco, um, but <laughs> Quincy's office sends Mark some tapes and it's, you know, we're supposed to sing down in, in our own special take six way. Uh, uh, the, the name of the nominee, the songs that uh, uh, they had for, that were actually nominated uh, for best uh, uh, a score song for a soundtrack in a movie, a motion picture. And so we're sitting there and our, we're just hanging out and, and going back to kind of how I set up that initial story where sort of the pressure was on special blend. We didn't really feel too much pressure most of the time. So we were usually inappropriately joking, laughing, hanging out, and just having crazy fun. Uh, uh, so, you know, we're just hanging out in the dressing room, looking around, talking to different stars, and just like, man, this is, wow, this is another, another pinnacle in our career. Uh, uh, time comes, and because of what it is that we do, that seems to be, uh, less interactive with other people, sort of we're a thing unto ourselves, they wait almost to the end for us to do what it is that we're supposed to do and, and sh uh, sort of so showcase uh, our presentation. Uh, and so we're sitting there enjoying everybody else. They call us take six to the stage, please. Uh, we get out there and we're just still taking it easy, no pressure. And we, Mark had done a great arrangement. We knew that arrangement well, no concern. We get out there and we do our thing. Uh, and what we were used to uh, following anything that we do is, oh, great job. Matter of fact, we have a sound that we uh, 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 use to emulate the, the, the applause and it's just, 
So when that didn't happen, there was silence and sort of the assistant director comes out on stage, you know, with the, yeah, yeah no, no, no. Um, uh, no, um, there seems to be a mix up. Next thing you know, oh, yes, uh, oh, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Uh, Quincy is coming to the stage. And we're like, oh, wow. <laughs> he hasn't been on stage yet. You can see him sort of like in, in a little uh, behind a glass pane, kind of looking down and overseeing everything that we're doing from time to time. He comes down on stage and says, uh, uh, you guys didn't get the tape? We're like, uh, what are you talking about? Yeah, Mark, he got the tape. <laughs> it wasn't me, Lord. That arranger that you gave me, um, <laughs> he received the tape. <laughs> Next thing you know, tur turns out that Mark had uh, received the first tape but didn't receive the replacement tape, which was the real recording that we were supposed to be learning. And it really seemed like uh, Quincy was super stressed out. And it was one of the first times that I, I had ever seen him with this demeanor. And the demeanor was really, you guys are in trouble. You guys are messing up the whole production. And, you know, we're going to have to deal with this. And we can't even deal with it right now. We'll have to deal with it later. Sort of like your dad saying, go to your room and just, or your mom saying, go to your room and wait till your dad comes home. So it was after everything was over, all the other performers and actors and presenters, musicians. Uh, uh, Mark, you got something to add? I must uh, stop you there and say, um, Quincy had a conversation with me. He told me what it needed to be. I said, okay, we will do that. And, and immediately, while they were still finishing up everything else, we went to a little spinning piano yes. on the side of the, you know, in one of the side rooms and got our act together in probably what? It was probably 20, 30 minutes that we, 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 we did a great job. And we came back on stage and presented it. Now, continue. Exactly. exactly. And so at this point, we feel like, oh, wow. We have literally, Mark has saved the day once again, and in 20 minutes, we're ready for uh, the performance tomorrow. Uh, Quincy tells us to wait uh, after we did our performance. It wasn't perfect, but we were trying to reassure Quincy uh, that trust us, tomorrow it will be perfect. That didn't go over too well. So as I was saying, everyone had left. I, we saw people cleaning up, lights were off, and that same little spin, spin at piano, I don't remember it being in a little side room. At this point, I remember it being in the hallway. In the hallway. In the hallway of the auditorium. And the humiliation of us sitting out there, because Quincy calls us out there, and he starts saying, sing it, go, go over it again. Uh, who, hey, who's singing this note? Uh, Dave, you're tripping. Go over it again. Uh, who's singing this note? As usual, Joey. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> either way anytime he heard something that wasn't absolutely perfect do it again do it again do it again now we're starting to sort of get hoarse because i mean we've done this like 20 times now do it again do it again after a while we aren't making any mistakes and he's continuously saying do it again do it again do it again do it again. And after a while, uh, the sort of 
uh, leftover humor that we had had completely left all of us. We were completely humiliated and felt like little kids being scolded by their father. And it wasn't, it didn't even feel like at the time something that was going to be helpful for our performance the next day. It really seemed more punitive uh, based on our perspective. But then I remember hearing there's a, uh, and I heard this later when I was, uh, I'm a, a tennis fan. And I was asking, uh, I was seeing someone comment as to why professionals are so good at tennis players at hitting their marks uh, when they serve. And the, and the, uh, uh, the line was, amateurs uh, practice enough to do pretty good. Professionals practice enough so that they cannot make a mistake. And so at that point, you know, hindsight, looking back, that's exactly what's, what Quincy was doing for us. Uh, uh, and once again, and reestablishing in our minds, because, you know, over time, when you're riding that wave of, of success and being known as, you know, the greatest vocal cats by Quincy, and, and we were known for our perfection. And here we are dealing with a star maker, not just the kind of producer that everyone says, oh, he's good. This is a star maker. He makes not just long lasting careers, he makes superstars. And he's telling us, showing us that this is what it takes to be at the top of your craft. Don't ever forget this. After a while, and it wasn't for the fact, and it, it didn't go unnoticed to any of us that he had been there stressed out the first time he had been producing the Oscars, a big weight on his shoulders after all of the work that he was supposed to do. He's sitting here after hours late at night with us, little old take six, and, and helping us achieve the level of success that he had set a standard for himself. So it's a lesson that uh, I will never forget. And it's like one of those classic moments for take six. Just to wow. add to that, Kenny, yeah. that performance is on YouTube. It was the 1996 Oscars. So your, your uh, fans uh, can check that out. Please do, folks. Go check it out. You heard the backstory, so I'm sure you'll appreciate the video even more <coughs> now. Claude, tell us a highlight, man. A highlight? Well, I don't have an amazing story like David Thomas. <laughs> but... Um, so I'm going to give you two shorter ones for me. And one goes back to when we were talking about that first Grammy Award ceremony that we went to. The thing that wasn't lost on me, and I tell people all the time when I'm interviewed, my favorite nomination we've ever had was for Best New Artist. Because you can only be nominated once for that. And that's the year that Tracy Chapman won. And I remember in that category was, you know, Tracy, ourselves, the Black Crows, and I think two other artists. It was five artists in history that year who could only be nominated once. So for me, that's our favorite nomination, my favorite nomination of all time. Um, we've been nominated for 24, 25 or so, but that's my absolute favorite one because no one else could be, you know, in that category except the five of us that year. And um, the other one actually, Claude, uh, implies that you're a household name because this is everyone considers you one of the best things to come out in music this year. Right. And until that point, if I'm not mistaken, we had only sold maybe 90 to 100,000 albums up until that happened. 
So everybody in the music industry seemed to know who we were. Um, but after those Grammys, um, that's when our record exploded. So my second story, though, was when we were able to sing um, at Barack Obama's uh, 2008 uh, inaugurate, not, uh, his, his um, Christmas. Democratic National Convention. Yeah, at the convention. Yeah. So we were in Denver and there were 90,000 people or so there. And even though we've done over our career a ton of huge events or whatever, I don't ever remember being in a situation where there was so much electricity. I mean, it was palpable. And you could walk anywhere in that stadium and people were losing their minds. There was so much excitement and so much electricity. So to be involved with that. And again, we were there with Stevie Wonder and, you know, sang with him. And so the opportunity to sing with Stevie was amazing. But it was more amazing for me to see the people feeling the hope and the, the sea change that was going on. So that's a huge highlight for me. That's awesome indeed. Joey, give me a highlight. Um, early in our career, after I joined the group, it was commonplace that before you release a project, you had to go on publicity tours. We'd have to, guys who lived in Nashville, I'm not even sure who lived in LA at the time, but we'd have to fly out to LA and take one or two days and just meet record people, you know, at, at the record company, do interviews like all day interviews and uh they'd have to do we'd have to do that in nashville as well and i guess new york uh but irma bird was our publicist and i remember one particular day uh, it was just in fact I'm, I'm trying to remember if that was the day but we had met we had taken pictures of so many people and you know talking being introduced to so many people and you know, I didn't know who these were, you know, and she said, OK, we need to do one more. Uh, take one more picture. Um, and, you know, this, this guy just got out of prison and such and such. And, such. and I remember my young, immature mind. I'm like, I just want to get back to the hotel. Can we please just snap this picture really quickly? I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if that was the day or whatever, but I was just like, let's just get this over with. And so she said something about something U.S. meeting, whatever. The rest of it was a blur. I We took the picture. I'm not sure how many years later when I realized that that was Nelson Mandela. Mm. And I have kicked myself ever since like, mm. oh, my goodness, Joey, grow up. You have no idea who it is that you've been rubbing shoulders with. Like now I look back, like if I could have just asked one question, like mm. anything to glean wisdom, but I just didn't have the appreciation. I was so young at the time, but it's like that is one of my most treasured pictures that we've taken with anybody. And it's like, oh, my goodness. God, thank you for causing us to rub shows with people. And thank you for keeping my mouth shut because I'm sure I would have said something stupid. Thank you for keeping my mouth shut. But that's one of the highlights of my, my, my life, being that's with Take a, Six. That's an awesome one indeed. Christian, give me a highlight. 
Man, um, I have two that are going to come from on stage um, memories. Actually, Claude took my absolute favorite, uh, the, the, the 2000, uh, 2008 DNC. We all do that. <sighs> but that was the day that I heard it in real life in association with something that I was a part of. When and you can go online and listen to it and it says, and, and take six, and the people went bananas. <clears throat> it was that sound was crazy, but we were in, um, I believe we were in uh, uh, Osaka, Japan, and I'm just having fun on stage like I normally do. You know, I'm just, you know, laughing, you know, whatever. And I see this guy out in the audience and he's like getting like really excited. So I'm at, we're at the end, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like we had just finished. Our, um, I think we had finished our encore. We just finished the last song or whatever. And so he was like, yeah. And I pointed out, I'm like, yeah. He was like, yeah. I was like, yeah. This guy goes, yeah, and runs towards the stage. Now you have to understand, we're in the blue note. Uh, the Billboard Live in, in Osaka. Stage is, you know, it's very accessible. This joker runs down and jumps up on the stage. And when I see him come in this I feel like my whole, all my blood in my body just freezes. Like, I, he came running so fast. The only thing I could think to do was take off running. So I'm running and I'm bobbing and weaving between the guys. Like, oh, 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 oh. You know, it was the, and nobody was stopping this guy. It was as if everybody was just, just amused. Like, I know Mark always said, that's your, that's what you get. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have worked him up. You shouldn't have worked him up. So this dude, I finally stopped and all he did was just grab me and hold me and hug me and just like, yes, yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to kill our road manager. He should have been here to protect me. <laughs> that was, it was crazy. Within 20s. Yeah. It was the, that moment was, was um, <clears throat> very, very hilarious. Um, the other one, actually, I, this is not on stage, but we got a chance to sing uh for uh we got a chance to sing for the sam's club um shareholders meeting and it was being held in orlando where i live and so the guys were being flown out on the executive jet the 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 sam's club jet and i'm like i'm the only one that's not gonna be able to sit on the jet this is in my city so I booked a one-way ticket to Denver, Colorado, because that's where our sound man was, knowing that I had heard that this, the, the ride was going to start in Denver, go to L.A., then to, then to Nashville, and then back to, to Orlando. So it comes come to find out that started in L.A. So that when we got to, I got to the, L, the, to the um, I know, all that time. Anyway, got to the executive airport, you know, like, and they're eating up all the food. Yeah, it's going on the plane lands. And these three L.A. dudes walk off and I'm like, doggone it. Just but the fact that I was able to take that flight on, that was my first time on a private jet. And it was like, we made it. When I say we, meaning me, because they had already been that many years before. But that was really cool. So those are two very, very special memories for me. That sounds awesome. Mark, round us out with uh, your highlight. My highlight would be um, when we were called to honor Stevie Wonder at the Kennedy Center Honors. Um, before that, when they called us in, what was so significant to me was that I personally was called in 
to arrange what was going to be done with the likes of Herbie Hancock and uh, Greg Fillingaines. I don't know if you all know who Greg Fillingaines is, but if you don't, you need to ask somebody because he is the beast of the industry. Um, Michael Jackson's MD for quite a time. And you, everybody knows who Herbie is. But I'm sitting in there with, with Greg and Herbie coming up with ideas for what we're going to do. This is so deep. And then I'll, I threw in an idea and for them to say, yeah, that's a good idea. And I feel like, you know, the, <laughs> the understudy in the back corner. Um, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And then, of course, you know, we were literally going on stage, um, standing next to Halle Berry and all the other great stuff that particular year. It was absolutely amazing. I know we're short on time, but I got to ask you this because Claude and I have talked about this a few times when I've had a chance to interview him. But your longevity for me is one of the most significant things about Take Six. The fact that you guys have lasted as long as you have, not just as industry uh, experts and uh, industry musicians who have excelled at the highest level, but you guys remain friends. Uh, I watch you perform many times, actually. I think there's nothing like a Take Six live performance. And I got to see you guys the last time in Nashville when you performed with the Manhattan Transfer, which is one of my favorite experiences when you guys were touring on the Summit Tour. Uh, but you guys just seem like you have fun. You seem like you like each other. You seem like you really enjoy doing what you're doing. To what do you account for that aspect of your longevity? Just anybody can speak about that because I know we're short on time. Counseling. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, That's where it begins. No. <laughs> right, counseling. Um, we ain't lying. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, and we always say this, but... I mean, it's been 30 years for me this year. Um, so I, much longer for, you know, some of the, most of the guys. But learning how to harmonize uh, behaviorally, learning how to harmonize in personality, learning how to be a family, learning how to give distance when uh, guys are dealing with something or they're, don't feel like being around other people, learning how to support when somebody's family member has, has died, you know, that kind of stuff kind of is the heat that just melds you into, into a family. And it's like everybody still maintains all their different personalities. Funny thing is, I'm not sure that any of us would really hang out with each other Otherwise, if it hadn't been for the group, I might hang out with Mark. But, you know, that's questionable. Not playing. Anyway, um, <laughs> but it's like all these experiences caused us to have to become family. And you learn how to uh, overlook. You learn how to address conflict. You learn how to uh, support each other. You learn what what triggers not to, to push, what buttons not to push. And that's been like a, a lifelong classroom to do that. The, the, the singing is easy. Learning how to live with each other and be each other's family is like, 
that's the real um, challenge to be harmonious, uh, that you see the fruit of that. If you hear us sing, if you see us joking, all that kind of stuff. But it's come from years of having to learn how to love each other. I don't think any other, anybody else could have said it any better. So let me give you your out question here. Uh, just give me a one, two sentence answer on these. I'm going to go to each person. What do you want the legacy of Take Six to be? David. I would say um, um, this seems cliche, but it has really worked for us. And that is whatever you feel your passion is, whatever that thing is that you would do uh, for the rest of your life, even if you had to work at a grocery store to just pay the bills. And this is as soon as work was over, this is what you came to do. Find that one thing and work on it until you have achieved excellence and then put God first. Christian, what do you want Take Six's legacy to be? That um, love conquers all. So we should spread it. Alvin. They brought the best music to the world. I was going to say gospel music, but they bet brought the best music to the world. Joey. <clears throat> I'd say uh, harmony. The world now needs not for everybody to become the same person. Mm -hmm. We need to learn how to live in harmony, which is be yourself, but be in harmony and respect the people around you and support and love those people around you. Claude, the legacy of Take Six. I think for me, what has been most important that and that seems to continue on for us from the very beginning is that there's an authenticity to what it is we do that we never shied away from. You know, I think a lot of people would have wanted us to be more homogenous in our sound and other things or whatever. But there's this thing about Take Six that when you hear us singing, there is nobody else that sounds like us. And that's not bragging or whatever. I think we leaned into the things that we do really well and the things that we've decided we're not going to change. And that's who we are. And I love that and want that to be one of the things that people, when they think about Take Six, they're like, yeah, those dudes are authentic, especially musically. Finally, Mark, the legacy of Take Six. I think that um, I, first of all, have to agree with everything that everybody else has said because it's actually so deep. But um, whether you hear us or not, and obviously you might have a chance to hear us because of the uh, the uh, difference of what of the music that we bring to the table that we brought to the world when you encounter us that you go away from this feeling a heavy dose of god's love um that you feel welcome that you feel extra love and that's something that we can't do in and of ourselves that has to come through god and what he does in our lives how we allow that to touch somebody else. So I, I hope they get that if they don't get anything else. 
Mark Kibble, David Thomas, Claude McKnight, Christian Dentley, Alvin Chi, and Joy Kibble. Take six, legends in the industry, brothers and friends. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to share this platform. And we'll be calling on you guys again at some point down the line, uh, certainly as a group, maybe even independently, depending on what kind of projects you might be working on and more. But thank you so much for this time that you've given me today. Thanks. Thank you. Absolutely. Jazz with Kenny Anderson is a partnership with Jazz in the Park Huntsville and is produced by David Person for David Person Media, LLC. The theme music was written and produced by Kelvin Wooten. Damian Malone provides podcast platform management. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. <laughs>